Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, I'm Hadassah Stein. I'm a fourth-year medical student at SUNY Downstate. I serve on the JOMA Teen Health Committee and I'm an interviewer for the JOMA Specialty Spotlight Podcast. The Specialty Spotlight Podcasts are geared towards pre-med and medical students interested in learning about different medical specialties. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Esther Libman. Dr. Esther R. Libman with an honorary bachelor's in science and an MD, is a family medicine physician with a full-time family practice in Thornhill, Canada, since 1982. She attended University of Toronto for medical school and continued at University of Toronto's family medicine residency program. She then obtained her fellowship of the College of Family Medicine. She worked regular shifts in the emergency department, North York General Hospital, from 1982 to 1984 and has continued to attend family practice rounds at New North York General Hospital with admitting privileges for newborn pediatric and adult patients. She manages women's health at every stage, addressing menstruation, birth control, fertility difficulties, perimenopause, and menopause. She has a particular interest in guiding Orthodox Jewish brides with period regulation prior to their wedding. She has received honorary awards in recognition of her outstanding commitment to the Orthodox community by the Toronto Lubavitch Center, Orsa Meach, Beaker Holom of Toronto, and Yeshiva University. Her interests include challah baking, fitness, tennis, swimming, simcha dancing, camping, and ice skating. She is married to a wonderful family physician, Dr. Robert Libman, with with whom she shares four terrific children and is the proud grandmother of many. Hi, Dr. Esther Lumen. Hi. Hi, Hadassah. Thank you so much for uh, interviewing me today. Hi. So our first question for today, why did you choose a career in medicine and what characteristics make one a good fit for a career in medicine? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I arise from a family that was very health oriented. There was no sugar or chocolate or coffee or tea in our household. Um, My mother attempted to make chocolate chip cookies without chocolate chips or sugar, and I often quip I could only trade them away once, and uh, so I I had that as sort of a background. I was also very active in sports, so I think I was aiming for some health-promoting profession. Unfortunately, when I was 13, we had a terrible tragedy. My father died of pancreatic cancer, and after that, I wanted to become a doctor and help find a cure for cancer. So I I did go into medicine, but not in cancer research. My interest in health, nutrition, exercise really did point me to the direction of preventive medicine, and family medicine, of course, would be a very good uh, fit for that. And also, on a practical basis, I wanted to complete my training and have children as soon as I could. And doctors, by the nature of their long training, often delay childbearing. And family medicine, which I thought was the best fit for me, conveniently had the shortest training program. So after graduating from med school, it was only a two-year residency. So, so that, that put me, I think, in, in that direction. 
Uh, now, I think you said about um, what was the fit? Is that what the question? I think yeah, so thank you so much for, for sharing that. The second part of the question is what characteristics make one a good fit for a career in medicine? Um, I think, first of all, I love helping people. And when you're a doctor, you really are in a position to help people. It's creative. Um, you're always learning. And people put their lives um, and their trust in you, which is very humbling. Uh, they share their secrets, their life events, the highs, the lows. I have ongoing follow-up with patients and their families. So they really do become part of my life, just as I have become part of theirs. Uh, furthermore, being a family doctor allows a very flexible schedule. So you can balance your professional life and your family life. Uh, I did start my professional career. I did OB and I did emerge. I delivered several hundred women, which was such a high because every time I brought a baby into the world, I actually teared up a little. It really was a miracle. But then when I got pregnant, I just completed my roster of pregnant patients and I wanted to focus on my own family. And also, I worked in the emergency department at North York General for about 14 years. But when I got called in as a second on-call physician during a Passover Seder with my husband and four kids at the table with extended family, I knew at that time I had to end my ER career, uh, which I was only doing on Monday afternoons. But then there was this roster where you had to do midnights and be second on call. It was just too disruptive. I couldn't control it. So now I basically have an office-based practice. I do visit my patients in hospital, but for the most part, I'm office-based and I can control my hour hours and, and that makes me a lot happier. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, for sure. I, I also experienced that with, um, in the delivery service, it's, it's quite amazing, but babies don't have appointments. So. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. If they could, I maybe go back to it. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, next question, can you walk us through a typical day for you as a family medicine physician and tell us why you decided to go into the field of family medicine? Okay, so uh, going through a typical day, not to frighten people, but my hours are very long, so I'm not sure I really want to model this part. Um, it does sound crazy, but I have a cook who comes in every morning around 7.15 in the morning, and she stays for about a, an hour and a half, and she makes my lunch and supper for myself and my husband, because we're both family physicians. Uh, I start work around 9, and I work until around 11 p.m. Uh, during that time, I'm talking to my four kids. You know, as you said, all of them are married. None of them are living in Canada. I often quip that it must have been something I said. But, but anyways, they all live long distance. We're, we are a phone call away. And I speak to them during the day. Um, and, and then I'm not usually speaking to patients at 11 o'clock at night. But I am doing my paperwork at that hour because I'm sending off referral letters. I'm doing specialist reports. I'm doing insurance reports. I'm doing legal reports. There's a lot of paperwork in family medicine. So I don't know how other patients manage it, but my husband and I do keep these, uh, these hours. Now, when my kids were little, uh, the hours were much shorter. Um, when, when my kids were small, I would have half days and I shared it with another mother physician and I would really advise this. So I would work in the morning, she would work in the afternoon, the next day we would, we would uh, shift it and she would do the morning, I would do the afternoon. I remember nursing my baby with one breast and I would simultaneously pump the other breast. I would miss one feed while at my office. So I would create that feed before leaving for work. And then I would return home and nurse again and pump the other breast. And I think it was pretty crazy, 
but actually it worked. It allowed me to keep my hands in medical practice and it allowed me to keep being a nursing mom and being a mom the rest of the day. So, so that worked for me, although, you know, it was pretty hectic. Yeah, that definitely sounds pretty hectic, but also incredible. <laughs> You're able to manage that. Um, okay, so uh, the next question is, can you tell us about some of your work in serving and promoting health in the Toronto Jewish community? Sure. Um, when I started to practice, it was in 1982. There were very from female physicians. I actually was not aware of any. So I felt I was filling a gap in care for our community. Uh, I know that in the States, they say, well, you know, make an appointment with a gynecologist. You can't make an appointment with a gynecologist in Canada. It takes months and months, and you must be referred by another physician. So that means I had to fill that gap that was not really a female gynecologist was not available. They would be available if there was an urgent problem. If you had an ovarian mass, yeah, they would see you. But none of the issues that I was seeing were life-threatening, actually, Baruch Hashem. But still, I, I had to fill that gap, and I had to learn the material. Um, so I did develop a subspecialty of from lady medical issues. So I would see a teenager with irregular cycles as, as a mom would bring the child in about, you know, worried about infertility. Many of them, let's say, would have something like PCOS, and that's quite manageable and often just some education and, and discussing what possible treatments. It was just very educating for the, for the family and also very soothing for them. Uh, also, I started seeing an awful lot of colors. Um, I think more than any other physician, only because I started my practice ahead of all the other physicians that were from that graduated after me. Um, so when I would see a color for the first time, I would control her cycle so she's not in need at the time of her chasana or her wedding. Um, I either would give her a medication called Norlitate, that's the Canadian name, Agestin's the American name, I guess norethindrone acetate is the generic name, and I would, or I would prescribe the birth control pill. And I learned about Agestin actually from a New York ob gyne Jessica Jacobs, who is a JAMA member. Um, so if she's listening, a shout out to her for helping me use this medication. We had a conversation which lasted about five minutes around 35 years ago. At the time, the chassan had grown up in my practice and his color had bleeding issues and she was in New York. And he said her issues were solved by this excellent ob gyne Dr. Jacobs. So I gave her a call. And I've been learning, so I learned about uh, agestin and I started prescribing it for, for my colors. So that really made a huge difference to my practice and how I was able to help them. And I usually would time a period about 23 days prior to the chuppah. And that way their period would be over. They'd be able to get to the mikvah. And it also allowed the color to be very relaxed that she was not going to get her period as she walked down the aisle. Uh, and, and so it has worked very, uh, very well. Plus, an awful lot of the colors, they're excited and they're frightened about the wedding night. And uh, often, uh, a color's word that sex will hurt. So I usually start with anatomy so she knows where her vagina is. I often say that many colors do not know where their vagina is. So I normalize this for them. Uh, because when you look in a mirror, it's actually hard to see. So I draw a picture for them. For them. I tell them to use a Q-tip, put Vaseline to insert it inside. Uh, and I say if they can't fit in a Q-tip, that they should come in for an appointment and I'll show them how. 
or if they are successful with a Q-tip, but if they can't put in a small lubricated tampon, I also tell them they should come in, even though they're kind of embarrassed to be examined, but usually their fear of something wrong is greater than their embarrassment. So they come in and most times I find nothing wrong. They just had the wrong angle and I get out a trusty mirror and I show them their anatomy and I insert the tampon for them. They are so happy <laughs> that they are structurally normal and it gives them real confidence. Oh, I see where it is. You know, like they're very, very happy. It's a very satisfying thing to be able to do. Occasionally, there's a structural issue like a septum in her hymen. And that does require a surgical procedure to remove it. And I refer to a gynecologist for that. But that's actually rare. And I also discuss fear of first um, intercourse. The color has heard something has to rupture inside her for intercourse to occur. I object to that word. I, I think it's much more accurate to say that there's bleeding from stretching the hymenal orifice, just like your lips would split if you open them too wide. Uh, and sometimes there's no bleeding at all because the hymen in some girls is very stretchy. So I tell them that she can gently stretch her hymen if she's worried about first intercourse and that would make her more comfortable. Um, Sometimes consummation does not happen the first time because the hymen was not stretched enough and it'll take several attempts. And I tell them that's completely normal. I usually actually give them the, uh, the agestin for about a week before the chasana to make sure there's going to be no staining, but I have them continue it until they have successful intercourse and then they stop it. So then they can get their period shortly after they're in need of from relations. So that's actually how I, I time it. Sometimes the reason why they're not uh, having successful intercourse is because she has vaginismus. Sometimes there's erectile dysfunction. So usually if they're unsuccessful in about a week or two, I usually try to uh, bring her in and we try to sort out the problem. If she has ongoing dyspareunia, I need to sort that out. Sometimes there is vestibulitis, sometimes there's anxiety, sometimes there's PTSD from abuse. So I may need to work with some sex therapists or pelvic physios, whatever, whatever the, uh, the color needs. Sometimes a colon wants birth control for the first several months as she's afraid to be pregnant right away. Uh, she may feel unready for a host of reasons. So this is a discussion with her, the husband and her rabbi. I actually stay in my lane. If she's asking for birth control, I will provide it, but I will let her work out what, um, what hashkatha she's going to be following. Um, there are some birth control pills that cause staining more than others. So I choose a birth control pill that gives good non-staining cycle control. I like Minoverall. Uh, it's other names. It has more names, I think, than all the other pills. It's also called Nordet, Porsche, Ovima. And when it's packaged as a three-month uh, package, it's called Seasonal. Uh, I find it's much better than a less, which is commonly prescribed by doctors who I think do not deal with the front patient, and there's an awful lot of bleeding with a less. Uh, after a couple's married and they're having difficulty conceiving, I make sure they're timing sexual intercourse correctly, and if uncertain, I have, I have her buy an ovulation kit, because most times ovulation occurs approximately 14 days prior to her next expected period. But if the young woman has a period cycle that ranges from 28 to 35 days, that's normal. So she may have a difficult time to sort out when is she ovulating. So an ovulation kit is very helpful. Now, if she has a short cycle, like every 22 days, she's in fact ovulating several days before the mikvah. So we call this halachic infertility. She's not actually infertile, but she's infertile if she's following halacha. So this is actually often easy to fix. If you give her some estrogen like estradiol on day three, four, or five of her cycle or 
sometimes they need it from day three, four, five, and then another three more days, six, seven, and eight, then the estradiol suppresses her FSH for several days, which in turn postpones her ovulation. So then she can get to the mikvah. This has been such a satisfying treatment. I have been um, you know, sometimes I'll give a talk in the community, a woman will come up to me, she'll show me a picture of, of the three children that she has because I've prescribed her this medication. It brings tears to my eyes. This is one of the most satisfying uh, treatments I have done. And because I deal with colors, I'm also dealing with color mothers. So my practice grew in this age group. So color sent me their friends, the mom sent me theirs. So I deal with birth control issues. I fit diaphragms for women who uh, are really averse to using any hormones. Uh, diaphragms are not readily available in Canada. So I have a pharmacy that brings them in from the US. And I also deal with perimenopause, menopausal hot flushes, irregular bleeding. And I also tell my patients, there's two great organizations which are helpful throughout the life cycle. I share this with them. With them. Uh, there's something, there's an organization called Nishmat and they can go online and ask their questions. And there's also Taharenu and there is, um, they can call a counselor. And it's just, they're both excellent organizations. Thank you so much. That was so informative um, for me. And um, we have a large uh, female audience, obviously, and I'm sure they appreciate that as well. But also being able to make your patients feel so comfortable and just being there for them, because these are issues that sometimes can make, um, you know, girls and sometimes especially in our community uncomfortable to talk about publicly. And you're, you, it seems like you really make them feel comfortable, which I'm yeah. sure they're they have like infinite gratitude for that. Uh, they are such a gracious and lovely group. You know, I never have to ask them, so do you smoke? <laughs> you know, I never, I never have to deal with those issues. They're lovely, they're sweet, they're just darling. And it, it really is my schools to look after them. Yeah, that's wonderful. And also like the, the way that you care for women in every stage so I think that's like really nice too, that you, you're always there for your patients, um, no matter the need. Yeah, that's, that's how I like to, well, it actually satisfies me, you know, it's, it's very enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, it comes through. <laughs> I, I hear your passion. Um, so the next question, can you tell us a bit about your involvement in Joma? Okay, so... Uh, when I joined JOMA, I was asked um, to give a talk at the JOMA Yale Symposium in August 2021. Um, I spoke to them about COVID in Canada and how it affected the doctors and how it affected you know, the GPs, because I'm certainly one of them, and the politics around vaccines. I also spoke about SARS because my hospital, North York General, was actually the epicenter for, for SARS in, in Canada in 2004. And, and this was like, oh, here comes another... Um, epidemic again. I guess SARS wasn't quite as extensive as COVID, uh, but our office was quarantined because an infected ICU, uh, an infected ICU nurse from North York General coughed all over our office. Uh, thankfully, Baruch Hashem, none of the doctors or staff became sick. I was off for two weeks. And SARS had a very high case mortality rate, much more than COVID. And there was no vaccine. So, so I feel that we, SARS was our sort of um, uh, our opportunity to learn on how to handle um, a pandemic. We didn't learn the lessons too well. So, um, but that was, uh, so I did speak about that. Uh, I also, um, I'm on several JOMA sites. I'm on the support chat, the medicine COVID chat, and the JOMA making for dinner chat. And I find this is a wonderful 
fun educational organization. And I just love it. I love it too. <laughs> um, I had not heard about the, the SARS in Canada. That's yeah. pretty fascinating. New information yeah. to me. Uh, I guess unfortunate that it had to happen, but yes. Interesting. Um, so when making for dinner, what is that? I've Oh, oh so this is, this, is, this is so great. There's a whole bunch of uh, Joma women who uh, anytime they have an excellent recipe or, you know, someone fancy schmancy is coming for dinner, uh, what recipe should I make or what, what starter should I do? Or does anyone have an outstanding fish recipe? It's great. Everyone just exchanges recipes. I think the, there is an ambition that all these recipes should be collated and put in a book, uh, like a cookbook. Um, but meanwhile, we are enjoying sharing recipes. Just a lot of fun. I love that. So have yeah. you, have you, have you tried anything or? Yes, I it? have. And I've also given some too. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. A good schnitzel recipe. I'm trying to think of the other ones, but, but yeah, I've tried different things and it's great. So your family and friends are benefiting from the chat as well. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And my husband. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, the next question we have if you could go back in time, given the experience and perspective you have now, is there anything you'd want to have done differently? Uh, yeah, I think the major regret that I did not take off Fridays earlier in my career. I, I think I was maybe working for 25 years before I twigged to the fact, yes, yes, I should take off Fridays. You really do need the time for yourself to cook for Shabbos, to pursue other interests, to go to the dentist. <laughs> you know, you need that day. Uh, I was afraid my patients would leave me. They did not. So I would have done that sooner. Also, I would have taken more time off for each baby because the very first baby I took off three months, baby number two, I took off four months, baby three, six months, and baby four, six months. That was a lot smarter. So I, I think that would be my, uh, those were my regrets. Yeah, that definitely sounds like um, good advice. Yeah. For, for others as well. Um, okay. And then that, that leads into our next question, which is what advice would you like to leave the pre-med and medical students listening to this podcast with? Okay. So my advice, um, if you don't have a partner yet, make that a semi full-time occupation <laughs> to meet as many good partners as possible and find a wonderful partner, <laughs> like be very assertive about that. Um, and uh, because once you have your partner and hopefully you'll have children and hopefully fertility will go smoothly for you, then I think you need to hire great help. I don't think that doctors, mother doctors do not have time for housework. And if someone is doing your housework, that frees you up to take your own kids to the park. So, um, so I would have someone who does my housework and clean my kitchen floor and peels all the carrots. So, you know, when I do cooking, it looks like I'm doing a cooking show. I just put in all the ingredients, ingredients that are already pre-prepared. It makes it so much easier. And otherwise, I just wouldn't have time for that. So I would really say, get that husband <laughs> if you can, have children and get help. Uh, if you can work part-time in your practice when your kids are small, I think that would be great. You really are irreplaceable at home. Uh, so do your best to be there as much as you can without having to be perfect. It may not be possible in some specialties. It's certainly possible in family medicine and likely pediatrics too. 
Uh, I advise exercising with your kids because you often won't have an extra time slot for yourself. So um, I would, for example, when I had a, a newborn crying baby, I would walk up and down the stairs. So the baby would settle. And then I would get 15 or 20 flights in. I was exhausted. Baby was asleep. It was a win-win. And when my kids were older, uh, we did martial arts. Like I put them, I signed them up for a kid class for Taekwondo. And I told the, um, uh, the instructor that, you know, if you want my money, I want to be in this class. I want to be with my kids. And uh, there was a bit of a pushback. Finally, they, they, um, they let me in. And it was very, it was just adorable. I was with them. One kid in the class looked at me and said, does your mother know you're here? <laughs> so I thought that was adorable. But, uh, but anyway, so I was busy with that. When my kids did gymnastics, I, I helped out. I was one of the coaches because I have a bit of a gymnastic background. Um, I would also say that mother-doctor guilt is universal. You feel you're not doing enough in both professions, uh, both professionally and at home. Um, I would try to recognize healthy guilt, the type of guilt that allows you to alter your behavior. So if you're feeling guilty, that you're eating too much junk food as you unwind at night and not nourishing yourself properly, then, you know, do your best and improve self-care and improve your nutrition. That's healthy guilt and a healthy response by you. Uh, looking after yourself is not selfish. And there's a reason that there is a recommendation of putting on your own oxygen mask before uh, you put the oxygen mask on your child in an airplane. Because if you're not caring for yourself, you're unable to give to others. But if you have toxic guilt, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure of a mom or a doctor, I'm unable to do this, I'm a fraud, get rid of all that toxic guilt. That doesn't do anything for you. It uh, doesn't help you in any way. So learn to recognize which type of guilt you have and only allow constructive guilt in. That would be my recommendation. And basically, in summary, it really is a privilege to be a physician and to help people every day. It is really a calling and it's not a job. And we are fortunate to be in this, I would call this a very noble profession. Uh, I have no intention of retiring. I, I am 68. I continue to grow every day. And I wish all of you similarly a rewarding career and a rewarding family life. Thank you so much. You're so wonderful to speak to. You're very, I mean, obviously brilliant, but also very soothing. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Hadassah. You are a delightful interviewer, and I really wish you well. I don't even know what year you're in. I'm a fourth year. Fourth year. Okay. Well, I'm wishing you much success in your future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website www.joma.org that's J-O-W-M-A dot org or email us at health at joma.org.